Welcome to Emotion Well, EFR's podcast about all things related to emotional wellness. I'm Johanna Dunlevy, the wellness manager for Employee and Family Resources, also known as EFR, and I'm the host of our podcast. As an FYI, EFR is located in Des Moines, Iowa, and we are Iowa's first employee assistance program and provide a variety of services you can learn more about at www.efr.org. I am happy to be joined today by Jay Foote, who is currently doing an internship with Employee and Family Resources. Jay, welcome to Emotion Well. Hi, Johanna. How are you? Good. How are you today? Great. It's a, it's a beautiful day in Iowa. It is. I heard a robin this morning, and I was very excited because spring is definitely around the corner, even though some days it doesn't feel like it. So it's, it's good to see those little sights of spring and have that hope for warmer weather and a new season. So, I agree. Well, I'm excited to speak with you today because we don't know each other very well, even though you're doing an internship with Employee and Family Resources, and we've connected a couple of times via Zoom to talk about this podcast and a webinar you're going to be doing for us in April. We don't really know each other that well, but what I do know about you is very fascinating and interesting, and so I thought that you would be a great guest for our podcast. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're currently doing at EFR. So I am a a master's level clinical intern for the therapy practice. I'm studying to get my master's degree at the University of Iowa in social work. I am about halfway through uh, the the master's program. This will be my second master's degree as I have a master's in jazz-based performance and improvisation from 20 years ago when I lived in New York City. Um, I'm originally from Iowa, and uh, I am a musician and an Alexander Technique teacher, and currently a master's student at the University of Iowa. So you're busy, and you have quite an interesting background when it comes to your experience and kind of how you ended up back in Des Moines and how you found... We're going to be talking about mindfulness and embodiment today, and so kind of that path from growing up in Iowa to New York City, back to Iowa. I'm curious, uh, tell us a little bit about your life as a performer, as a musician, and what you were up to in New York City for so many years. So, yeah, that I mean, there's so much to say. So I'll sort of try to give you the kind of quick version. Um, I grew up in a musical family. My father is a musician, and he still actually plays music. Uh, around nursing homes around Des Moines several days a week. Uh, My younger brother, Alex, is a fantastic guitar player and producer. He just had some of his music featured on a Super Bowl commercial, and he's currently on tour even during the pandemic with a pop artist from L.A. named Kay Flay. My younger brother, Ben, is a very accomplished bassist, and we grew up playing music together um, in Indianola, Iowa, at the United Methodist Church every Sunday. And in high school, I studied jazz and got sort of obsessed with learning to improvise. And I studied with the best teachers in in Iowa. Um, There's a woman in Des Moines here named Susie Maget, who has taught every great jazz musician who's come out of Iowa. I went to the University of Northern Iowa for four years and I studied jazz and classical bass. Um, 
I really love playing music and it really is the thing that has pushed me to, um, well, it pushed me to New York, really. Um, I studied classical bass at the University of Iowa for one year before I moved to New York in 2003 to start a master's in jazz bass performance because I wanted to be a jazz star. But no, right. one, no one told me that that's not a thing. That, <laughs> that uh, jazz stars, there's like two of them. And it's Kenny G, who <laughs> some people say isn't playing jazz. And then Wynton Marsalis, who is a very jazz purist. And um, both of those musicians are amazing. I'm not taking anything from them. But it, I found out it was very hard to make a living playing jazz music. Um, the conservatories in New York City are churning out hundreds of jazz graduates every year for very few gigs. Mm -hmm. And I sort of transitioned into um, playing music with people who could pay me to play music with them, which turned out to be mostly songwriters and people playing pop music in bands and people who were signed to record labels. So I um, toured with a handful of musicians who were signed and had big touring budgets. And for the 18 years I was in New York City, I moved back to Iowa two years ago toward the beginning of the pandemic. Over the 18 years in New York, I worked a bunch of day jobs until 2008, at that point I quit and went on tour with this amazing um, banjo player named Matt Bauer. And Matt is not famous, but except he was, in 2008, he was very big in France. And okay. he does this sort of like whisper folk banjo thing that at the time I just loved. And my brother Alex and I got in a minivan with him. And for eight weeks we traveled around America and at the end of the eight weeks, we played, I think, 60 gigs or something crazy, oh, wow. like a lot of gigs. And I made $500 for the whole time. And I was so... $500 in eight weeks. <laughs> I was so happy. I was like, I'm a professional musician. I got to see America. I wasn't working a day job. I, yeah. made, I made it. I was like so stoked. I mean, it didn't even cover one month of my rent. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, and like things started um, like rolling from there. I auditioned for some artists and I went on tour for two years with Diane Birch, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. I was at the show in Des Moines in 2010. That's right. Yeah. So I toured with Diane for almost two years. We went to Japan twice. We went to Europe three times. We toured America, I think six times, opening for a bunch of people. My brother Alex was also in that band, and a bunch of my friends cycled through that band playing drums and trumpet. We played on Letterman, we played on The Tonight Show, we played on um, basically every late night show with her. She was on EMI Records, and I just learned a lot about the music business and touring, tour managing, singing backup while playing bass. Uh, it was a great experience. It sounds like a really fun opportunity, but is it exhausting? I'm just curious when you're on the go all the time and you're constantly surrounded by other people. Like, I don't know you, so I don't know how you get your energy. If you get your energy from 
occasional solitude or if you really like being around people a lot. But I would just think the life of a performer, whether you're the, you know, the lead performer, like Diane Birch, or if you're doing more of the the backup stuff, like it would just, it would be such an interesting and unique opportunity. But at some point I would think you would start to burn out a little bit. Is that? I think that that's probably true for most people. Um, And I think thinking about the context that I was in, I was working day jobs in New York City. I mean, I was a receptionist at Knoll, the furniture design company. And so I would answer the phones for 50 hours a week and then play gigs in the evenings that may or may not have paid money. Um, Then I worked for an ad agency where I was, I, I mean, it was really, I was an administrative assistant and touring and making real money being paid by a record label was so energizing and I really do feel like touring is it's like a form of mindfulness or it's a zen state because every city that you arrive in you don't know where you're going to eat you don't know where you're going to go to the bathroom you don't know where the hotel is you don't know where the venue is and so every single moment is sort of an adventure with new stimuli, uh-huh. stimulus. So you're constantly mm-hmm. just present in the moment, trying to figure out what are we going to have for dinner? Where am I going to sleep? And with on low budget things, we might be sleeping on somebody's floor. I mean, yeah. I, on that tour where I made $500, I think I slept under a grand piano. I slept in <laughs> random people's basements. And... It felt really exhilarating. And then fast forward like nine months, I was touring with Diane and we were being put up in the best hotels in Tokyo. Everyone had their own hotel rooms and we were being flown around the world. It was incredible. And so every moment was exhilarating. And yes, you'll get home from being gone for six weeks and just crash for a day or two. And they Mm -hmm. they actually, there's a term for that. um, Musicians call it, uh, tour depression because you, no. you get home and you're back in your everyday routine where you have to get up and sort of do the things that are that you're used to compared to like yeah. what city are we in right now like, uh-huh like and what? I would assume when when you make it like when you're with Diane Birch a lot of those decisions were being made for you versus you having to figure out where you're sleeping I, I would assume that at some stage you get to a place where okay you're working with a musician who's on a record label. So some of those bigger decisions are being made by someone else. And you're just told this is where you're staying. This is where we're eating. Definitely. This is what time your show is. And that sometimes that's nice because you don't have to make decisions. <laughs> Definitely. And you don't have decision fatigue. So, so during this whole life experience, were you practicing mindfulness? Were you aware of, you know, the benefits of mindfulness Tell us a little bit about how you started connecting the dots between your life as a performer and the importance of being mindful and practicing mindfulness. So, yeah, good. Yeah. Um, I, I spent four years at the University of Northern Iowa where when I auditioned for the School of Music, I was not admitted. They, okay. they admitted me on a pro provisional status Mm -hmm. so I got to take all the classes but 
I wasn't a good enough classical bass player to get into the orchestra. So they gave me some time to get my stuff together. And I feel like I have a really good work ethic and a strong work ethic. And Uh my, my father sort of instilled in me that working hard is, um, is what we have to do to succeed in life. And so I promise this is related. I worked really, really hard to get into the music school to the point where I sort of um, embodied a feeling of working hard, which created Mm -hmm. a ton of extra tension in my body. And I started experiencing chronic pain. Uh, In my second semester at UNI, I started having issues with my hands and my wrists, and I had gotten into the music school at that point, and I was practicing five hours a day, and not well, uh, but experiencing enough pain to be going to the doctor, and the doctor's advising me, maybe I should stop playing music. I wasn't, they actually said I wasn't cut out for it, that I, maybe my, my arms and hands weren't um, strong enough to be a bass player, which... I sort of believed at the time, and I had a really great professor. Um, he was the violin teacher, Fred Hoggedall, at the University of Northern Iowa. Asked me to go see uh, his friend, who was an Alexander Technique teacher. And I was willing to do whatever it took because I really, really wanted to be a professional. And within, after six months of cro- just constant pain, where if I turned a doorknob with my left hand, uh, I would have shooting pain that would go up to my neck and ear. Oh, wow. And I really thought I had to stop playing. Um, within a half an hour of meeting this woman, she got me standing on both of my feet and balancing my head a little bit better at the top of my uh-huh. spine and breathing in a way that yeah. uh, wasn't so fixed. And the pain that was occurring in my uh, left hand disappeared. And that was a realization in that moment that I had, I was doing something that was causing the pain. And that sort of set me off on this now, what is a 25 year, I'm not quite that old, 23 year journey of self-exploration, of body awareness, mindfulness, balance, and ease in my body and mind. And there's more to that story, but. Well, I also went to UNI. I don't think I knew that about you, that you're a UNI grad. I was there probably a couple of years after you, but I remember I took a gen ed music theory or something like that. Dr. Shepard, do you remember him? Yes, definitely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I saw him like 10 years ago. So, you know, 10 years ago, I was out of college by about eight years, but I saw him at a restaurant in Des Moines and I said, "Uh, excuse me, are you Mr. Shepard from UNI? Oh, I am. And I said, oh, you know, I was your student, you know, years ago, but uh, very cool. I don't, you know, in Des Moines, I meet a lot of cyclones and Hawkeyes, but whenever I have a chance to connect with someone who went to UNI, I love it. So go Panthers, right? Um, Definitely. So talk to us about the Alexander technique. So you were connected to a woman who practiced that through one of your professors at UNI. And so 23-ish years ago, that was your first introduction to the Alexander Technique. And have you been 
using it ever since? Or did you get introduced to it, find relief, and then come back to it when you experienced more chronic pain? Kind of what was that journey like? So when I had the realization that I was in control of my pain and that I was causing it by the way that I was holding my the muscles in my back, my shoulders, my neck, uh, it sort of sent me in this um, just path of exploration because now I was able to uh, realize that my career was possible. And so uh-huh. I would go and I drove to Ames to visit this woman. Uh, and I took lessons maybe like once a month and I really couldn't afford to do it, but I did it anyway. And she really helped me a lot. <laughs> and then there was a woman in Iowa City that I took a handful of lessons from when I lived there after I graduated from UNI. And then when I moved to New York, I started taking lessons with different teachers in New York because there are way more Alexander Technique teachers in New York than mm-hmm. there are in Iowa. There were two in Iowa at that time, and there were like 300 in New York City. Okay. And then I started reading all the books I could find, and I would, whenever authors came into New York, I would try to go see, see them um, for a lesson. And so I took lessons all over New York. And then when I was traveling with Diane, I I took lessons in London uh, with some teachers. I took lessons in uh, LA and Portland, Oregon and Chicago. And like whenever I was on tour, I would try to like get another lesson. And when Diane stopped touring because her uh, record cycle was over, I went back to New York to my apartment and I had saved up a ton of money. I mean, for me at the time, it was a lot of money. And I had no gigs because I'd been gone for like nearly two years. And I had the realization that I have a little bit of money saved up. I'm really interested in this thing and I want to know more about it so I can figure out this thing that is my body so I can find more balance in it. So I enrolled in the Balance Arts Center teacher training course, uh, which is um, one of, was, at the time was one of the five Alexander Technique schools in Manhattan. And that process to become certified in the Alexander Technique in the United States, you have to study for 1600 hours in about a three year time period. So I went to classes four days a week for four hours a day and and she was flexible enough so when I would go off on a little tour or a weekend of a week of dates somewhere with whatever artist I was playing with at the time uh, she would just accumulate my hours and I ended up doing the training in about three and a half years and um, for those of you who don't know the Alexander Technique is a mind-body awareness practice that helps people find balance and centeredness in their body. And it's really good for actors and dancers and musicians, uh, people who are looking to really like excel at whatever activity is that they're trying to do. So performance, usually. Alexander himself was an actor from Australia in the late 1800s. He lost his voice. He was a Shakespearean orator before sound systems. And so when he would go to give a performance, he would 
try to speak very loudly to a very large room. And when he did that, he would press his, his head forward. And uh -huh. you can hear on my vocal cords how strained that is. And yeah. he, he would lose his voice after a time of doing that. And then doctors in, can you imagine, before electricity, doctors in Australia in the 1890s being like, actually, I think we should operate on your throat to make sure uh, that, that the, I don't know what the, even what they would consider doing for an operation, but he said, right. no, no, thank you f to the operation. And the legend is that he went home, bought three mirrors and sat in front of them for five years and just observed himself. Oh, wow. And he created this system where he could um, really fine tune his sensory appreciation of, of his own head neck balance. And then he passed that knowledge on to a bunch of students. He ended up moving to London in 1904, taught all the best actors of the day in London. And his technique has helped thousands of people. I mean, there are thousands of teachers, so probably tens of thousands of people yeah. get out of pain or find more balance in their bodies or, um, or, or learn to walk better or sing with mm -hmm. more resonance or... Uh, breathe more easily. Um, so that's sort of a, an aside, but I studied over three and a half years. And then after I certified to teach, I stayed in touch with my teacher. I kept attending classes weekly. And then at a certain point, her training course got so big, it became the largest training course in America at the time. This was like 20 15 or so and then I became an assistant on her training course so I was working two or three days a week in the training course where I trained helping train other teachers to be people who wanted to become teachers of the Alexander technique I didn't realize that it dated back to the 18 the late 1800s that's really interesting I I always find it fascinating that I mean you know your body you have been with your body your whole life you know, it's, it's the one thing you've always had, yet we're often unaware of, you know, the way it feels, how we're moving it, what we're not moving. And I just think it's so interesting to think about mindfulness as it relates to the body. So the breath, for example, I just did a mindfulness training this morning for one of our clients and I led them through a guided relaxation. But before we did the guided relaxation, I had them just focus on inhaling and exhaling because we always have our breath to come back to, right? I've heard the saying, uh, my breath is my anchor, my anchor is my breath. And it's true, right? We always have our breath, yet I don't think we use it to our, our best advantage. Uh, and so is Alexander technique, it's about body awareness. Um, but would you say, is it focused primarily on the breath and how the breath can help you then move your body or position your body in a way that you find more ease, less pain. Um. Yeah, so that's a yes and no. Um, so the, from the Alexander perspective, the breath is integral to all things that involve movement and living because we need oxygen for our blood and we mm -hmm. need oxygen so that our muscles can move. And so breathing well is definitely part of the Alexander work. 
it is just one part in the okay. um, the Alexander teacher who's teaching well is helping the student coordinate their whole body. And okay. so really bringing into attention uh, the breath, the muscles. Um, some people talk about posture. And a lot of people, th when they think of the Alexander technique, they think of it as a posture. There's one woman in, in New York City who calls herself the posture police. And it's sort of tongue-in-cheek. Uh, and she's quite successful at using that as a marketing tool. I don't use the word posture for Alexander technique because it implies a fixed position. And okay. what, I, what I believe is that we can learn to dynamically rebalance ourselves in whatever position we're in, whether it's sitting on a chair or standing up, uh, finding ways to allow for the potential for movement to happen or, um, or uh, yeah, allowing for the possibility that you could move without moving. Uh -huh. so, uh, so I'm gonna throw you a curveball. So I'm seated right now. How would you, so how would you help me? And I forget now what you said. Um, dynamically rebalance yes so how would i dynamically rebalance so um there, there are many ways and coming from the 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 frame of awareness we're just going to in let's do something is that okay yeah no so, that's great so whoever's listening to this um just take a moment and just just breathe just breathe easily so you're going to notice that you have air coming in your nose and it might feel cool and you can just allow the awareness of the breath moving in your ribs, your ribs in the back can move and that's possible. Then we can bring our attention to your contact with the floor and a lot of meditators talk about um, allowing your sit bones to be on the pillow or on the on the chair so Johanna you have two sit bones and they're mm -hmm. the bottom of your pelvis and they're rounded and so just right now shift your weight onto your left sit bone continue to breathe and now shift your weight onto your right sit bone and continue to breathe good and you're shifting quite a lot and those people who are at home uh, aren't going to be able to see us, but let's yeah. let's sh do that same thing again. That was perfect what you just did. Okay. Now shift again. So shift to the, the right and you're going to allow your left sit bone to stay connected to the chair. Let's, I'm going to make up a number. 30% of your weight is still going into your left sit bone, but 70% is going into your right. So, All right. and then when you do that, continue to breathe and allow your air to continue to move. And then now shift your weight so 70% is on your left sit bone and 30% is on your right. And just notice what happens right there in your lower back, in your hips, in your uh -huh. ankles. What, what's, what's changing, if anything? Mm -hmm. And actually, yeah, what, what do you notice? And let me just, if I'm going to set this up as uh, this yeah. is, we're now in the midst of an Alexander technique lesson. Whatever you notice is the right answer. So uh -huh. if you say, 
I actually don't notice anything, Jay. Uh, that's a perfectly great answer. If you notice that your breathing is a little different or that maybe your ankles released when you continued, when you allowed the breath to continue while you were shifting your weight, or if you noticed mm -hmm. your lower back changed in a different way, mm -hmm. or maybe you noticed that your shoulders released in it. What? Sorry, I just gave you a hundred yeah, no. examples. But so, <laughs> well, what I noticed, I didn't notice anything. And I wouldn't say I noticed anything from like my knees down though when I, sh so the first time you asked me to shift my weight to the left, I noticed because I'm looking at myself on this zoom recording, I was like way over here hanging out. Like my, you know, my right glute was almost off the chair. <laughs> yes. And then when I shifted to the right, same thing. And then when you gave me that, you know, okay, so 30% of your weight is going to stick, stay in the left side and 70% in the right. It was just, I noticed how my breath kind of helped me gauge where that would be. I know maybe that's weird, but it was like, oh, yeah, that, you know, and then I found it and I noticed I wasn't leaning so far and I was much more comfortable. I, if anything, like my greatest sensation right now is probably like around my rib cage, especially on the backside of my body. So whether that's from, uh, and I know we said we're not talking about posture, but whether it's just from the way I'm seated right now or I worked out, I did kettlebells at the YMCA a couple of hours ago. And so perhaps that's kind of changed the, the way my body is moving and feeling right now. But that's where I feel most of it. Uh, I didn't feel much below, like from the knees down. But so that and it also just kind of feels good. Like it just kind of feels good to shift side to side. It, well, yes, exactly. And yeah. And so what I heard you say is that your breath, you noticed your breath change a little bit, or you noticed something about the quality of the breath changing. You noticed uh, movement in your ribs and mostly in your back. And that, uh -huh. that totally makes sense to me um, because you created some movement in a place that most of us are pretty held and fixed in our lower uh -huh. abdomen. And when we think of sitting, we think it's one position and most of us habitually sort of fall into this one sort of zone. And Alexander teachers would invite po more possibility into that. And so me just inviting you to shift your weight a little bit might give you a little bit more awareness of what what is balancing between those two sit bones? Your, uh -huh. your pelvis has the possibility for movement in it. There is also a tendency, most people tend to favor one sit bone over another, just mm -hmm. chronically. And, and then they'll, if they do favor, let's say they favor the left, until they're really uncomfortable, then they favor the right to like try to yeah. balance that out, even on a subconscious level. And so one of the things that we do as Alexander teachers is we invite people to find more balance between the two sit bones and then more balance uh, in your shoulders and more balance with the breath. So, so Johanna, take a breath in right now through your nose and notice, did... What did you notice about the breath? And I'm gonna ask a couple more specific questions. Right. Did you notice the air on the outside of your nose or on the inside of your nose? Did the you, inside. Okay. Did you mm -hmm. notice it favoring one side over another? Like, is it mostly coming in on the left or the right? 
Yeah. Well, I practice alternate nostril breathing, so I know where we're going with this. Yes, I tend to find that I breathe more in through my left nostril. Yes, that's it's very common, and people sometimes have never even thought of it. It's sort of amazing uh, that that you know that I breathe in mm-hmm. through through my left as well, and that's just a coincidence that we both do. Some people mm-hmm. do the right. Some people actually don't have sensation of air coming in their nose often. And so wow. finding, allowing them to feel the sensation on the outside of their nose, or maybe they just feel the sensation of their lungs moving uh, or the shirt touching their back as, uh-huh. as the breath moves. Um, I actually forget the original question that you asked me. <laughs> Something about, was it about posture? Because we, I, think, I mentioned that. I think you wanted help with discovering how you're sitting. And so, yeah, yes, yes, that's what it was. So when we also, so here's another sort of a side. When you're sitting in a chair, a lot of us don't allow our feet to be flat on the ground. Mm-hmm. And some of us have our ankles folded over or sometimes we, which is what I'm doing right now. I have my ankles crossed. That's so that that's very common. And that does create a certain holding in the hips. Uh-huh. And um, it doesn't allow the legs to be fully grounded onto the ground. And so just for a second, put your heels on the ground. Okay. Allow your knees to be above your heels, wherever they are. And then mm-hmm. your hip sockets are in the front part of your leg, like right where your legs fold, like right. So you're sitting, your knees are in front of you. You look down and where the skin folds in your, uh-huh. in your pants, that's right about where your hip sockets are, right in the middle of the leg. And so it's really elegant design on many levels. The base of support for your head and neck is in the, right in the middle of the neck. And the base of support for the torso on your legs is right in the middle of the leg. It's like really elegant. Now, line your knees up and your heels up approximately within a couple inches of you of your hip sockets so that your knees are really sort of, they're parallel, but not 100% parallel. They're sort of turned Mm -hmm. out at like 15%, let's say. Yep. Now tell me, what do you notice in your legs or back or neck or ankles or face when you let your heels be on the ground? Well, I definitely noticed, I felt like I shifted like from the waist up. I felt like I had kind of a I naturally have like a pelvic tilt and I need to do more like tucking, right? Versus kind of having that sway back. And so I kind of noticed that it helped me get my low back in better alignment. So I don't have that strain because I'm naturally going to like stick, you know, my backside out. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm going to have that curve. And when I kind of tuck my, I noticed when I put, when I uncrossed my feet, both feet flat on the floor. And then when I lined up my knees with my ankles, I just noticed a shift in that low back area. Um, and I actually feel a little less tension now through like the rib cage and mid back where I was sharing just a few moments ago that when I was doing the hip to hip, um, weight distribution, I noticed that more. And I feel like I noticed that less now. So that's awesome. I mean, I'm so glad that you're feeling these things. And, and if you had said, Jay, I don't notice anything. That would be a perfectly acceptable answer. 
and you have a lot of body awareness. And so mm -hmm. what we're what we're learning here in this moment and what I'm hearing you say is that when you find balance in your sit bones and you allow your feet to be on the ground, your back, your lower back specifically, feels a little less tense. Is that is that what Yes, correct. So, correct, yes. This goes back to this greater Alexander Technique concept is that when we put ourselves in positions of um, connection or balance or um, poise, that we actually will release this ex excess tension. And when mm -hmm. we're, we're releasing this excess tension in our bodies, it also affects our minds. So we might, uh -huh. we might respond differently if we're not holding our shoulders together because we're sitting on one sit bone. And if we don't mm -hmm. hold our shoulders together and lean forward with our heads, we'll fall over. And so really finding a way to be balanced so that your head can balance at the top of your spine, so that your back can be long, so that your legs can be released and on the ground. Um, I've found in my own experience and then in the experience of my students, just that much will often allow people to release pain that they've been holding in their shoulders or ankles uh -huh. or neck or back. And so people come to me for lessons when they're in chronic pain and they're like, my knees are really bad. Let's say they say that. I will not necessarily work with their knees at all and then I'll work on their back and work on their neck and really establish a poised dynamically rebalancing connection to the ground and to the chair and their knees won't hurt anymore at the end of the lesson and they're like but I want you to look at my knees and I ask are your knees hurting right now and they're like no and that's because we're getting the body to be a little bit more balanced which uh -huh. I've heard you say the word relaxed a lot. And I think that that's relaxation is valuable only if we're relaxing with a purpose, which okay. I find relaxing with intention. So I'm relaxing into poise. I'm relaxing into balance. I'm not relaxing into passivity. And so, right. except if I want to, so like if I'm tired at the end of the day and I want to watch a TV show, relaxing into passivity is fine. But my, in my frame of the Alexander technique, I'm building awareness so that I can make choices that are sometimes habitual and sometimes not. And with awareness as the goal, I don't have to be perfect and I can find um, just more self-acceptance in my body and in, my, in how I'm interacting with people and responding to stimulus. And um, it's a really good practice for me. And I, t I have a small teaching studio in Des Moines and um, I, j I love helping people explore their bodies and in turn, they explore their minds as well. Yeah, well, I will definitely link to that information in our show notes. So anyone listening, especially if you're in the Des Moines area, can connect with you if they if they want to learn more about this technique. Uh, one thing that you mentioned um, earlier was that, you know, if you 
reposition yourself and you don't notice anything, that's okay. I, I've been doing yoga for, you know, consistently. Well, I really started doing yoga a lot more when the pandemic started because it was a way for me to have kind of a mind body practice in the comfort of my apartment. Uh, and I, but I had been practicing it for years prior though. Now I'm just more regular with it. I have been getting body work on a regular basis for eight, nine years now. And so I feel like body work through massage, I've done rolfing. I don't know if you know what rolfing is, um, and yoga and then just breathing exercises like alternate nostril breathing. Those have helped me become more aware in my body of my body because I don't think prior to, you know, being intentional about some of those things, I was able to, I, I would have noticed which nostril I was breathing in through more or the sensations I feel when I'm getting a massage and I feel a shift. So for someone who is listening and they're doing this and they think, you know, I'm kind of in that, I don't notice anything different camp. What would be a couple easy things for them to start doing um, on their own that could help them be more aware of their body or their breath or just just ways for them to explore that, you know, mindful awareness of this body that they exist in? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think I think one of the main things that I've gained from the Alexander Technique and then my own sort of meditation practice is allowing myself to slow down enough to be quiet and observe what's happening. And so, so right now, I'm sitting on my my seat, and I have a little dog that's licking my hand because I've seen him. He's yeah, pretty cute. <laughs> he's very he's very cute, um, and I'm also breathing, and I'm allowing my ankles to release because that's where I hold tension. And it's taken me about twenty years to like really be this in tune with my body, and and. Let me just say, like, the first 10 years of this work, I didn't know why it was working because I didn't have any awareness of myself from the neck down. I didn't uh-huh. know why the Alexander Technique was working. And so I was the person who was saying, I don't feel that. I don't know. I don't notice anything. And my teacher kept saying, it's okay that you're not noticing. Just allow for the possibility that you will notice something. Sure. And and even if you want to be more intentional, instead of trying to notice something, imagine what it might feel like if you did notice the thing that you want to feel. Uh-huh. And working from this self-acceptance, non-direct, um, just exploration of what is possible. So to give peop- people direct you asked for something. What what's something a little thing that someone could do? So the next time you're sitting at a stoplight and the person isn't going and the light is green, instead of allowing yourself to get upset, just check in with your breath and be like, oh, the green light's happening. The person's brake lights in front of me are still on. And instead of allowing myself to be frustrated and maybe tighten my throat and scream 
an obscenity into my car, <laughs> just notice my breath and see yeah. if that noticing allows for a change in the musculature of my neck and my head and my back. Notice if it allows for the possibility that you don't respond in such a negative way. So mm -hmm. building in pauses. So stop flight could be one. Let's say the next time you go to brush your teeth, notice that uh, you can breathe while you're doing that through your nose. And also that oh, you can stand yeah, that's a good one. evenly on your heels. So yeah. a lot of people stand on the balls of their feet mm -hmm. and, and then they put weight on their toes. And the toes are not actually supposed to take weight. The toes are really for dynamically rebalancing. And so okay. if we put a majority of the weight on our heels, because that's the large bone, and we allow the ball of the foot to be on the ground, it will force us probably to unlock our knees and to let our hips be a little bit more easy because we're going to be farther back in space because most people are standing on the balls of their feet. When you move to the heel, we feel more grounded in ourselves. And so the next time you're brushing your teeth, Notice, am I standing on both of my heels and allowing my toes to be easy? And then just that awareness and allowing the breath to go could really change how or what you what you notice. And yeah, just like one one more idea. Um, there's a, a professor at the University of Glasgow who wrote this paper saying that human beings, actually have 33 senses, not five. And Interesting. So, and so being able to sense more than just uh, sight, touch, taste, sound, uh, I'm missing one, smell, mm -hmm. you can also um, sense time passing. You can sense yeah. balance. You can sense hunger. Uh, thirst, temperature, and texture of things uh, on your skin, which could be, you could argue, as touch, but if you also think about your hands being cold, that's an internal sense of, of um, sensation. There's also proprioception, so like knowing where your feet are in space. Mm -hmm. um, all of these senses that we are capable of can be cultivated and, and worked on. So knowing when we're hungry and not being hangry is like a skill, a self-awareness skill. Right. And then when we notice that we're holding our breath, we can allow the breath to release and just notice how that changes. And then just to tie this to meditation, I think a lot of people are trying to silence their minds and I don't believe that that's the goal of meditation is to quiet the mind. I think the goal of meditation is to become more aware. And so when we notice that our minds are wandering from our breath, being grateful and showing gratitude that you're not maybe doing the thing you wanted to do. You wanted to be aware of your breath, but I'm thinking about dinner. Instead of being like, man, Jay, you're a bad meditator. Allowing for the possibility that actually I'm building awareness that my mind just wandered to my dinner and that's okay today because that's all I can do. 
and then mm -hmm. gradually and gracefully and peacefully and with as much self-acceptance and respect bring yourself back to your breath or to your knees being unlocked mm -hmm. or your sit bones being balanced on the chair or your breath coming in evenly between both of your nostrils. All of these things change our uh, physiol, uh, I'm not sure, our physical state. And then as a consequence, <laughs> and I mean this in the most positive way, it changes our mental state. Mm -hmm. Because that mind-body connection that people talk about so much isn't so much a connection as it is the same thing. Right. Well, this has been very interesting, Jay. I really appreciate your time today. I think you shared a lot of great ideas that people can implement now. I love the idea of at a stoplight or when you're brushing your teeth. Uh, I love that, you know, you led me through a couple exercises that our listeners can also do as well. Of course, they'll have different answers, you know, from me, but, and that's okay. I also like how you emphasize that, you know, it's it's not about judging how you feel or what you feel or don't feel, but it's just about observing, right? It's about observing your breath, your body, kind of where you are in this space and place that you're in. So this was very, very interesting. I will link to your website in our show notes. And is the is your website where we can find out information about the, the courses that you're doing in Des Moines? Yeah, so I have two websites, actually. One is my name, jfoot.com, and that's the musician website. That's where you can okay. see the records I've played on, the records I've produced. Uh, someday when the pandemic lightens up again, I might actually play live gigs again. And, nice. Um, so if someone was interested, for whatever reason, to find out what I've done, that would be a good place for that. AlexanderTechniqueDSM.com is my Alexander teaching website, and you can schedule lessons through there. I teach a Monday night meditation class on Zoom right now. Um, okay. It is body scan sort of focused, but there is a silent component to it where we work on just allowing ourselves to be present to what is on a weekly basis. And I, I have a small but very dedicated group of people who, who are meeting me weekly and um, it's pay what you want. It's a really great, nice. great group of people. So if people are interested in that, they can email me as well. Excellent. And then I, I want to note on April 13th of 2022, we're doing a webinar with you at 10 a.m. So information about that will also be in the show notes. And if you're listening to this podcast and April 13th, 2022 is now in the past, the recording of that webinar will be on our website as well. So thank you again for your time today. And thank I you. look forward to working with you more at EFR. Thanks for listening to Emotion Well. Please subscribe to us and don't forget to rate us. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Emotion Well is hosted by Johanna Dunleavy and produced by Emily Wonkham.